Our sermon scripture this morning is Psalm 73. Um, it can be found on page 485 of the Pew Bible. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is in their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked at heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let me encourage you, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, to keep that place there at Psalm 73 as we work our way through it. It was July of 1989. I was 35 years old, been pastoring for five years, but I was struggling. I, I had some issues with the Lord and his, uh, the way he allowed things to happen. Let me explain. In July of 1989, Hugh Hefner, the founder of the Playboy magazine and Playboy Enterprise, the man who's responsible for uh, mainstreaming pornography and, and doing more moral damage 
than maybe anyone else, was getting married for the second time. He was marrying a woman, he was 63 years old, he was marrying a woman, 26, who was, by the way, one of his playmates. Well, why would that bother me? Why would I struggle because of that? Because in June of 1989, my dad, at age 62, a man who loved the Lord and was faithful to his wife of 38 years and who had a great influence in my life and was responsible, humanly speaking, probably more than anyone else for me being a Christian, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, had died of lung cancer. I watched him struggle for every breath. He literally died in my arms. And to read that Hugh Hefner was not only allowed to live, but have this experience, getting married to this beautiful woman. It, it was almost more than I could handle, more than I could take. I found myself really in the place where Asaph find, found himself, as we just read in Psalm 73, as, as he observed the prosperity, the easy life of the wicked, contrasted to what is often not the easy life of those who know and love the Lord. This morning, as we look at uh, Psalm 73, we're going to do so under four headings, four points, four words. Uh, they are in your bulletin and are on the screen. Uh, the first word is the word distortion. The second word is disillusionment. The third word is discernment. And the fourth word is devotion. Um, you'll forgive the alliteration, please. But in, in any case, it's it just kind of the way it worked out. But before we do that, before we look at each of these points in turn, would you bow with me as we go to the Lord and ask for his help? Would you do that now? Our God and Heavenly Father, indeed, Lord, we thank you again for this time together. We thank you. Not only that we are able to meet, but that we have a reason for meeting. That we know the God who is not only the creator, but the redeemer and sustainer of all it is. The God who has graciously purchased salvation through your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, our Father, we ask you that your word would have its intended effect in our lives today, that it would instruct us, that as needed it would rebuke and correct us, that it would train us in righteousness, that each of us may be truly equipped, adequate equipped for every good work that you have called us to. And so we commit this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. Do you know what the bokeh effect is in photography? It's, <clears throat> I just learned about it not too long ago. Um, it's something that photographers use to highlight the subject that they're focusing on. They focus on the subject and they blur everything else, the background effect. It's used often in portrait, portrait photography. If you have a modern smartphone, 
your camera can probably do it. On my iPhone, I just go to the camera settings and click on portrait mode, and it takes care of the rest. Well, what happens with the bokeh effect is one thing gets highlighted, but everything else is blurred. It's, it's distorted. Well, for Asaph, life had become a bokeh effect because he was focusing only on one thing, the prosperity of the wicked. He was focusing on the easy life, apparently, of those who didn't love the Lord, those who didn't care for God, and it blurred out everything else. It distorted everything else for him. Notice some of the things that he focused on, some of the things that became clear and apparent to him. In, number four, in chapter, verse 4, for they have no pangs until death. Everything's smooth sailing until they die. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now, that seems like a contradiction to us. Fat and sleek don't seem to go together. But we need to understand the way the word fat is often used in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean obese. Often it refers to just well-fed, healthy, not, not dealing with hunger. And so they, they have all they need, all they could want. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They have an easy life. In fact, if they do have trouble, they have the means to get out of it through their wealth, through their positions, through their power. Therefore, verses 6 through 9, Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. In other words, they feel free to say and do whatever they want to whomever they want, even to the point of blaspheming God. They have no concern about that. Now, verses 10 and 11 are a little difficult to translate. I say that because you'll see them differently in different translations, sometimes even contradictory seemingly. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Who are his people? And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? But basically, what, what that is referring to is the fact that people look at this and they think, well, it must be okay because Either God approves or God's absent. You know, he doesn't know what it's, what's going on. He's, he's no longer minding the store, so to speak. So what is going on? Asaph, the psalmist, and by the way, Asaph was a worship leader. He, he was appointed by David to be one of the worship leaders in the tabernacle, which goes to show that both worship leaders and Pastors can struggle with, uh, with these spiritual things. But he summarizes in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. To Asaph, this summarizes their lives. How can this happen? We see it in our own day, don't we? We see evidence of the fact that many people who are the most, what we would consider ungodly, the most flippant, 
of the Bible and God and the things of God seem to do pretty well. Some of the most wealthy people in the world don't give a care about God, the things of God, the Word of God, the standards of God. And some, it's not just celebrities. It's not just people that are in the news. It may be people in your own life. It may be people that you know well who, who seem to have it made, but they don't give a rip about God or the things of God. That's often reality. A lot of this is true, but it's not the whole picture, is it? That's the problem. The problem is when we focus on that, we don't see the big picture, just like Asaph failed to see the big picture, which we'll get to later and, and see how he is corrected. See, when our focus is on the pr prosperity or the position, the popularity of others, especially unbelievers, it's a dangerous place to be because it can often lead to the second step. We move from distortion to disillusionment. We begin to question God and, and question God's ways with us, with our lives. Notice verses 13 and 14. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Have you ever had a day or a week or even a month where it just seems like nothing's going right? You know, everything is just falling apart. And it's just one disaster after another. When you're experiencing something like that for a day or, or a week or, or even longer, how do you talk to yourself? Is it like this? When upon life's billows, your tempest tossed. When you are discouraged, thinking all is lost. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Is, is that how you're talking to yourself? If we're honest, it's not always, right? No, it's more like this. Gloom, despair, and agony, oh me. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony, oh me. For those of you who don't recognize that, that's from the classic and classy TV show, Hee Haw. Uh, some of you may remember that. But how do we talk to ourselves? What do we say in those days? You know, it's good to count our blessings. Asaph wasn't. That's not what he was doing. He was focusing on what others had that he did not have. And sometimes we do that as well. I heard Zig Ziglar tell a story many years ago. How many of you are familiar with the name Zig Ziglar? A few of you. He was a motivational speaker, especially back during the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. He was also a Christian. And um, he told a story about being asked once to counsel a woman who was in deep distress over her life. He was reluctant to do it because he said, I'm not a counselor. But because of the person who asked him to do it, he agreed to meet with the woman and see if he could help. So he met with her, and immediately she began to complain, began to complain about especially her job. Uh, 
she hated her job, she didn't like the people she worked with, and just on and on and on. And after listening for a little while, Zig said, you know, I think it's only going to get worse for you because no employment place, no job can handle that kind of negativity for long. I think you're going to get fired. And she couldn't imagine, she couldn't believe it. She said, me? Why would they fire me? He said, well, you need a change of attitude. So he gave her the assignment of making a list of all the things she did like about her job. And she said, well, that'll be easy. I don't like nothing about my job. And he said, well, wait a minute. Don't they pay you on your job? And she said, well, of course they pay me. He said, you don't like to get paid? She said, well, yeah, I like to get paid. Well, put that down. That's number one. And then he began asking more questions and, and uncovered a half dozen or, thing, or so things that she did like about the job. He said, I want you to go home and I want you to add to that list. And I want you to read over that list every day and then come back. So she went home and eventually she made a list of 27 different things that she liked about her job. And she read over it every day and it transformed not only the way she looked at her job, but also the way she looked at life. What has she done? She had gone from counting her disappointments, her bad things, the, the things that she was focusing on before, to counting her blessings. And sometimes that's a good thing to do. Well, often that's a good thing to do, isn't it? But guess what? It's not always enough. Why? Because even when we count our blessings, sometimes the wicked still have more blessings, earthly speaking. They, they do, and we have to face that. So what do we need then? We don't just need to count our blessings. We need a new perspective on what ultimately matters, and that's what Asaph got. The third word is the word discernment. He, need, he needed to discern what matters just for time, but what matters also for time and for eternity, because that's much more important. When I was a younger man and a relatively new Christian, I was so excited about the fact that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I was so thrilled with the fact that I had the Holy Spirit indwelling me and with me all the time that, that I, I really thought that if there was nothing else, if all there was to the Christian life was what we experienced in this life, it would be enough. Well, as I said, I was a young man. That was a long time ago. I don't think that way anymore. Why? Well, because this life is not all there is. And because we were made for something more. I'm in good company in understanding that. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul, he writes that what became 1 Corinthians 15 to correct the error that there was no resurrection. So he's there defending the resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, um, he wrote this. If you want to turn there, I'll give you a second. Some of you could quote it. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Because as I said, we we were made for eternity. And even though being a Christian is great for this life, I'd much rather be a Christian 
you know, if there weren't anything else. But we were made for something more. Because I'm never going to be as holy as I would like to be in this life. I'm never going to be as consistent in walking with the Lord in this life as I will be in eternity. I'm never going to experience the fullness of what the Lord created me for and redeemed me for in this life. So, just like Asaph, we need to have discernment to understand the difference between what matters for now and what matters for eternity. How did that happen? Well, back again in Psalm 73, we read verses 15 through 24. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. That's verses 15 and 16. Asaph says, you know, I know I shouldn't speak like that. I shouldn't express what I'm feeling outwardly. It might upset people. It might be a stumbling block to others. But I don't know how to get out. I don't know how to think otherwise. But then verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood. Then I discerned their end. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. For, of course, for Asaph, the sanctuary of God was, was the tabernacle. It's where the sacrifices took place. It's where the law was taught. It was where he worshipped the Lord, his God. It was in worship. Worshipping God. Focusing not on circumstances, not on others, and even not on his own problems, but focusing on the Lord, that Asaph got a new perspective, that he was able to discern what was true and what ultimately matters. And what did he see? First of all, he understood, or he saw, the end of the wicked, where they were headed. Notice verses 18 through 20. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. You see, they've got to grab all the gusto they can get in this life because that's it. In eternity, they're going to experience judgment. For all, forever, unless before that time they repent. Don't envy the wicked. They do not have a good end. We should pity them. We should pray for them. But not only did he discern their end, he discerned his own foolishness. He realized how foolish it was. Verses 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. In other words, life for me was really, you know, I didn't have any better perspective than than a beast, than an animal who just lives for the day for what he can eat and what he can experience. I was such a fool to not see the truth. But then he also discerned how gracious and merciful God had been to him. Notice verses 23 and 24. Nevertheless, nevertheless, 
in spite of my attitude, in spite of how foolish I was, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. He realized that the Lord had protected and preserved him, that the Lord had not allowed him to go over the the edge, so to speak, spiritually. That, yes, his foot had slipped, he had almost stumbled, but he didn't fall. Why? Because Jesus was holding him fast. The Lord was preventing him from doing that. Notice he says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. It wasn't about what Asaph was able to do, although he had responsibilities. No, it was the Lord preserving him. It was the Lord protecting him. So what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us when we're struggling with life? It may not be just envying the prosperity of the wicked. It could be in any number of things. What does it mean for us to enter the sanctuary? What does it mean for us to be able to have our our perspective changed, for us to be able to discern what's true and what's just illusory? What is the sanctuary for us? It's not a place, it's a person, right? The sanctuary typified and pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who fulfills all that the sacrificial system pointed to. He is our sanctuary. So it's in meeting with Jesus. It's in not only confessing him as Savior and Lord, which we certainly need to do, and if you haven't done that, you need to talk to someone maybe just sitting next to you about what that means. But it means meeting with him on a regular basis in his word and in prayer and in fellowship with others. We do that privately in what we call our devotional time, our quiet time or whatever. We, we do it corporately like we're doing this, this morning. We also do it in small groups, maybe one-on-one with others or maybe in, with a few people. It's, it's meeting with the Lord. It's focusing on him. It's focusing on his word. It's allowing his word to instruct us to rebuke us if necessary, to correct us and to train us in righteousness. That's that's what the sanctuary is for us. It's Christ meeting him. And then things change. And we see that in the fourth word, the word devotion. Fresh from his worship experience with God in the sanctuary, With a new perspective on the prosperity of the wicked, the psalmist describes his devotion to the Lord. Previously, he was obsessed with the unfairness of life, but now he's obsessed, if I may use that term, with God himself, with all that he has in the Lord. Both his eyes and his heart have been turned away from the world and toward the Lord. Whom have I in heaven but you? And, on, and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. You know, we could just take out the word may. My flesh and my heart fail. 
but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. His temporary insanity, as it were, has been changed. It's been cured by rediscovering an eternal perspective. The bokeh effect has been replaced by the ability to see the big picture, to see what really ultimately matters, and to focus on the one who makes it all possible. And I love the final statement of the last verse. It says, for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. See, he doesn't just want to experience the Lord for himself. He wants others to as well. He's become an evangelist. He wants to tell others about what God has done for him. You know, King David does the same thing in Psalm 51. We're not going to take time to turn there. But uh, after confessing his sins to the Lord, after asking for the Lord's forgiveness for restoration, he says this, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Lord, you restore me to the joy of your salvation, and I'm going to tell others. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Lord, I can't help but tell others about what I've experienced. When we have experienced God's mercy, his love and grace in Christ, we want others to know it as well. So, do you ever feel like Asaph or like I did 30 some odd years ago? Do you feel like you're not getting the good things you deserve while others who don't give a flip about the Lord are getting good things? It's easy to shift our fo focus from the Lord, from his mercy, his grace, his great love, his faithfulness, his promises to the apparent inequities all around us. We can become envious of others, even the wicked. We can develop FOMO. For those who don't know, fear of missing out. I had to look that up. <clears throat> Apart from the grace of God, we cannot sustain the kind of love and devotion that Asaph describes at the end of this psalm. We need to enter the sanctuary regularly continually in order to be rescued from looking at the world too much and looking at the Lord not enough. We need to enter into Christ's presence in his word and in prayer through regular corporate worship, through rich discipleship relationships with others. We need to hear and heed the convicting voice of God's spirit as he speaks through his word and through others. If even on our worst days or in our worst weeks, we want to be able to say with Asaph, truly God is good to Israel, to his people, to those who are pure in heart. We need to learn what he learned and expresses there near the end. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we stand amazed in your presence to know how patient, how steadfast, how faithful you are to us, even when we are so faithless, even when we take our eyes off of you, off of your grace, off your mercy, all that you have done for us in Christ, and we put it on the wrong things. Lord, when we begin to complain about our lot in life, forgetting that you have dealt with us not according to our sins. Lord, you have not rewarded us according to our iniquities. But Father, you have been merciful and gracious that whether it be in this life or in the life to come, Lord, we do not receive what we deserve, but you graciously give us forgiveness salvation, eternal life. Lord, indeed, we praise you, we thank you, we ask you that you would help us to not only live, as it were, in your sanctuary, but also, Lord, to tell others. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.